0: Well, happy Mother's Day. It's always scary when you put your kids on camera, isn't it? Well, big thanks to uh, the moms that were part of that video and also the creative team that put it together. I love that video. Uh, one of the things that I love about it, I don't know about you, but was how we got to hear from moms what it's like to be a mom in our world today, right? Their answers were, they were raw. They were real. They were vulnerable. They didn't give us these packaged answers that might sound good in church or something. And so I love that. And some of the things that the mom said are actually what we're going to be talking about today. Now, before we jump in, let me be clear right off the bat, I've personally never been a mom, although I do have a girl's name, so that plays uh, maybe a couple of points right there. But it's my opinion, and I'm sure many of you agree, that moms really are some of the biggest unsung heroes in our world today. Like two amens. I expected way more than two amens. Wow. Guys, step it up here, right? Uh, And honestly, though, it's not hard to see why. I mean, whether you had a mom like this, whether you are a mom like this, whether you know a mom like this, maybe you're married to a mom like this, without a doubt, moms are the kind of people that, that work day and night doing the sort of things that we tend to take for granted, right? They go above and beyond their call in so many ways. Uh, in fact, speaking of going above and beyond, I had to share this funny little story this weekend, but uh, this, was, this happened to me two years ago on Mother's Day. It was Mother's Day weekend. It was Saturday evening. It was about 8.30 at night, uh, and my wife and I and the kids were sitting in the living room, we're watching TV, just relaxing, uh, when all of a sudden I heard my garage door start to open. Now, I did real quick, I looked at my family, I did a head count, everyone was in the living room, so I'm thinking, who on earth is opening our garage door? And so I looked at my wife, and she goes, I have no idea. Uh, and so right away, my old law enforcement brain went into gear, right? And so I told my wife and kids, go in the back room, shut the door. I ran into the bedroom, and I grabbed one of my handguns, and I went and stood at the top of the stairs because our, our garage opens into our basement. All right, my heart is beating like a million miles a minute. And I'm thinking, this is really happening. Someone's coming into my house right now. And so I stood there. I've got my weapon, and I'm watching. I was like, if that door opens, it's going to be a bad day for whoever's coming through that door. And all of a sudden, the door starts creeping open. And out pops my mother-in-law. She goes, hi! I almost killed my mother-in-law on Mother's Day. All right? She came all the way from Corpus Christi, Texas to Kansas City to surprise us. Yes, sometimes moms go above and beyond, and then some, and then they end up having a funeral. All right? Anyway, moms, don't do that to your kids, okay? Okay? Uh, This last week, I came across a really cool study, a pretty fascinating one to me. I guess online, they surveyed 15,000 moms, and they asked them what the top 10 time-consuming responsibilities that they had, what those were, right? And so things like being a taxi driver because your kids are in lots of activities, things like being a a first responder, a paramedic because your kids fall down, get scrapes, bruises, all those things. Moms wear a lot of hats, And the survey said after they crunched all the data, they put everything together, they realized, they figured out that according to all these hats that moms wear, they should be making, salary-wise, just for being a mom, the equivalent of $118,000 a year. Amen. (laughs) All right. And there's some moms that are thinking, that's not close to enough, is it? Right? That's awesome. I mean, that's just to see that, right? But knowing that, I actually shared that study with my wife, and my wife had a little bit She's like, I don't really feel like culture gives that kind of value to moms. The world we live in, I don't really f- feel like we get that kind of value, right? If anything, she feels like at times like culture treats being that of a stay-at-home mom or a full-time mom almost like an entry-level job, almost devalues it a little bit, right? In fact, the words that she hated hearing when she was still a stay-at-home mom, she's a full-time teacher now, but that she hated hearing the words, oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom, as if that's not enough, right? Right? And so she always felt like she had to defend herself in those moments, she said, and so she felt like she needed to add something to her job title, like, well, yeah, I'm a mom and, and a nuclear physicist, you know, or something like that. She felt like she had to defend it, all right? And so knowing that, having that conversation, I talked to some of the moms in my grace group too, and they all kind of echoed that same thing. Uh, and so bottom line, in a lot of ways, I suggest it's not really fair how the role of being a mom is perceived in our culture today, how it's diminished and almost devalued at times, Right, And so that's actually the topic that we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about how sometimes life isn't fair. How at times we not, might not feel the kind of value that we believe that we deserve. How at times we, we might even feel like what some of those moms said in that video, like we just feel like failures. Like we're not measuring up, we're not doing good enough. Right, And so, listen, whether you're a mom here today or really anybody that has ever uttered those words, life isn't fair, or you feel like a failure, maybe not altogether, but maybe certain areas in your life, this message is for you today. But I do have a feeling that this message will speak in particular to moms, because we're going to take, the, take a look at the life of a mother in Scripture that is one of the most overlooked and devalued moms in the history of mankind. In fact, if she was here today, she'd probably say that she felt like an utter failure all of the time, right? And so this message might feel a little bit different today because I'm just going to share her story, but it is an amazing, amazing story, All right, And so real quick, before we jump in there, I wanted to say welcome to those of you that might be joining us in our Olathe campus today. Also wanted to say welcome to those of you joining us online, whether you're in Kansas City or Mexico City, we have people joining us from all over the world each week, and we love that. Also want to say welcome to those of you here in the Ovalon Park campus, maybe in the venue this morning. Uh, which incidentally, some of you might not know this. Uh, one of the hats that I wear here at the church is I am the venue pastor most weekends, uh, and I know a lot of you probably haven't been in the venue or maybe you haven't been there in a while. Uh, and so just just to help out a little bit, I actually took a couple seconds of video last weekend just to kind of show everybody this weekend what the venue is, looks like, what's happening in the venue. So I have that video right here for you. So you kind of see. God is doing some amazing things in the venue. And so if you haven't checked it out, I'm just going to encourage you, why don't you stop by the venue? Uh, I'd love to see you out there. This weekend, we are wrapping up our series uh, that we started actually back on Easter, and it's when God doesn't make sense. Uh, and it's a today where text is going to be both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And to make it easy for you, it's going to be the first book in the Old Testament and the first book in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible today, raise your hand up across our campuses. We'd love to give you one. The ushers are are ready to pass those out. If you don't own a Bible, I will say this. Please consider that a gift from us to you. We would love if you take that home with you today. Uh, I promise you, no ushers will tackle you on the way out. Uh, And so to start off here, kind of bring everyone up to speed, uh, give you some context on this story. I love this story. For those of you that grew up in church and went to Sunday school like me. You guys remember those, um, I call them prehistoric PowerPoint, the flannel boards, you know, where you had the little characters that moved across and everything. You guys remember those? And so I learned about these stories when I was back at Sunday school. But back at two preceding chapters in Genesis 27 and 28 is where we find out about this guy by the name of Jacob. And Jacob does something really bad. Everyone say bad. Okay, say it like bad. Okay, that's good. All right, that's, I mean, that's bad. All right. Uh, And so he deceives his blind and dying father into giving him the blessing, the birthright, that should have gone to his older brother Esau. Now, some of you might remember that Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau was born first, and so he was entitled to the birthright, to the blessing from his dying father. And so when Esau finds out, Esau, being kind of a burly hunter type, right, was pretty mad, and Jacob being kind of like the stay-at-home kind of type, we'll just make that nice, uh, he was kind of scared. And so Jacob actually skipped town. His mom actually told him, just get out of town and go stay with some relatives until Esau calms down. And so that brings us into Genesis 29, which is where the chapter opens with Jacob on his journey. He stops at a well to get some water, and he meets some shepherds who are there with their flocks of sheep. Now, I need to point this out. At this particular well, there was a big, heavy stone in front of the well. And it was there basically to keep animals or whatever from falling in so it wouldn't contaminate the water of the well, right? Uh, But this stone was so massive that it took several shepherds to move it out of the way whenever they wanted to get water from the well, right? And so anyway, Jacob is standing there talking to the shepherds when all of a sudden, in the distance, he sees this stunningly gorgeous woman by the name of Rachel walking towards the well with a flock of sheep of her own. Now, I want to point out here that Jacob didn't play good little Christian boy at this moment. He didn't look at Rachel and say to himself, who is that virtuous woman with such integrity and a humble servant's heart? That's not what he said at all. In fact, he did the exact opposite, all right? He looked at her outer beauty, and he goes, whoa, how you doing? (laughs) Kind of got the Joey from Friends there, which makes sense because Rachel is her name, right? Okay, Uh, And so funny thing is, too, verse 10 here, we actually see more evidence of what his intentions were, right? And so, in fact, let me ask this, ladies, what do guys do when they are trying to impress you? Show off, right? I heard someone say it. They show off. We are notorious for showing off when we want to impress somebody. And so whether it's a feat of strength, whether it's our intellect, whether it's our sense of humor, we do things to try to show off to impress the ladies. And this is exactly what Jacob is doing here. Because when Rachel shows up, all of a sudden Jacob makes a beeline right for that big heavy stone in front of the well. Now, this isn't in the text, but I've got to imagine this is what was going on in Jacob's mind at this point. He's a guy. He's probably looking over his shoulder, hoping that Rachel's watching. Maybe he's flexing a little bit, like, hey, guys, I'm going to go to the stone over there. Right there, yeah. Maybe he's clenching up his butt muscles a little bit, you know. Can I say butt in church? Is that his hiney muscles? I'm sorry. Because he knows that Rachel's watching, right? He goes over to this stone, and he moves the stone all by himself, right? He's totally showing off, and apparently it must have worked, because in verse 11, Jacob all of a sudden is planting a kiss on Rachel, we should give him a round of applause. Like, way to go, Jacob, because that's awesome, right? And then right after that, the verse says that he started crying. So he wasn't very smooth, apparently, right? And so anyway, Rachel runs, goes and tells her dad that she's in love, she wants to get married, and that's where we drop off right there. And so let's pick up now in verse 15 of Genesis 29. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my relative, yes, they were related, that's a different story, uh, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So the first thing that we see here in verse 15 is that Rachel's dad, Laban, was a pretty savvy business guy. And you're going to want to remember this, all right, because we know two things. One, that he had a whole bunch of sheep and some flocks and some shepherds on his payroll. So he's doing pretty well in life. And then secondly, he, he is quite the opportunist. Because when he sees that Jacob has this puppy love for his daughter, Rachel, he decides to take advantage of that and con him into working for seven years to marry Rachel, right? So he's a total opportunist at this point. And verse 18 says that it was seven years. He says seven years, Jacob goes, done, All right? And so now we know a little bit about uh, Laban, right? He's kind of an opportunist. And now in verse 16, we see that the writer of Genesis actually gives us a description of Leah and Rachel. Now, interestingly, all he writes about Leah is that her eyes were delicate. Now, for those of you that are Bible geeks, like I try to be at times, if you dig into the original language there, directly translated, that means that her eyes were cloudy. And most scholars believe that there was some cultural slang going on here. And so what the writer is really saying here is that Leah was not easy on the eyes. And so in other words, she was not the attractive sister. All right, And then to add insult to injury, her even her name in ancient Hebrew, check this out, it was both a verb and a noun, and in verb forms, and if you know anything about Hebrew, there's far less words in the Hebrew language, and so often they have many more meanings, and you've got to study the etymology of that, is that you find out in verb form, not noun form, in verb form it meant weary, or some translations say wild cow. Okay? Now that's not what Leah means today, so if your name is Leah today, please don't write a comment card to me, Okay? And so then, for her sister, though we read that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and directly translated, that means that she was beautiful in form and appearance. All right. And so, in other words, bottom line, there's a big difference between Leah and Rachel at this point. And so, let's just stop here for a minute and think about how unfair life must seem to Rachel or to Leah at this point. Ladies, how would you like to have your name recorded in the Bible, in God's holy and timeless truth? as being the ugly sister, right? And not only that, knowing that your name is probably only brought up at this point for comparative value to the beauty of your younger sister. And on top of that, your younger sister now has a fiancé. You're older. You've got no prospects in sight, and you should be the one that's getting married first. Can you imagine how she must have felt at this point? Maybe feeling like, you know what, she's feeling a little devalued. Maybe like she's a failure in life. Nobody cares about her. Right, and so basically, Rachel gets all the attention. Boys are falling over themselves trying to show off for her. But then we got Leah, who's standing in back. Everyone's ignoring her, and she's probably wearing thick-rimmed glasses at this point. So some of you might be relating to the plight that Leah is already having. So knowing that, I have a suspicion, and especially given some of the later verses here, that Leah was doing something that many women and even many men do to this very day. Maybe even maybe you're even doing it right now, and that's something called the comparison game. All right, by a show of hands, just, just be honest, all right? How many of you have ever just compared something about your life to someone else? Okay, thank you. All right, honesty. Those of you not raising your hand, you're probably comparing right now, aren't you? <laughs> right? We just fall into this trap all the time, don't we? We just, we'll compare what we're wearing or, or, or our body shape or, you know, how attractive we are compared to somebody else or really anything we care about. Do I pitch better than my neighbor does when baseball? All these things, we compare ourselves. In fact, I'll be honest. I'll be, I'll be vulnerable for a second. Right, even as a minister for the last 20 years, I, I still find myself falling into this this comparison game at times. And I compare myself to other pastors now. Right? There's this one pastor that I watch online, he is so articulate, he is so anointed, he has always got such a powerful word, but he also happens to have these massive biceps. And I'm just I'm being honest here, right? I know it sounds vain, but I just I watch his biceps when he's preaching, and after a while, I'm not following along in the Bible, I'm sitting there curling my Bible, right? Because I want to have biceps like he does, you know. I know that's vain, but we compare ourselves, don't we? And sadly, this whole comparison game, it's actually as old as humanity itself. Check this out. You guys remember the very first two people in the history of mankind? Remember Adam and Eve? They didn't have belly buttons. The only two who didn't. Think about it for a second. It's okay. All right. And so they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Do you remember what happened with Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord. Cain compared his offering to Abel's, thought Abel's was better. He got jealous, and he killed Abel. That's how deadly this comparison game could truly be. And unfortunately, I actually think that this comparison game is getting worse for us today. It's more frequent. It's easier for us today. I mean, think about it. We can't go anywhere these days without being bombarded by billboards. Magazine covers in line at the grocery store, movies, TV, social media is the absolute worst for the comparison game. And all these things, they show us this idealized image of how we're supposed to look or what we're supposed to be wearing or what our body shape is supposed to be or how our kids are supposed to be behaving or how beautiful our homes are supposed to be decorated, how good of a cook we are, whatever the case is, we compare all of these things, right? I read a study this last week that said that 91% of moms surveyed said that they were unhappy with their appearance or their body. 91%. 91%. And then the study went on to say this, and I didn't actually didn't know this, that only 5% of the population even has the idealized image that you see in the media or in the billboards. So in other words, 95% of us are never going to look like those people, even if we try. Right? And then it went on to say that a full 25% of moms or women who then they go on diets to try to look like these idealized image end up with eating disorders, and only 10% of women who get eating disorders ever even seek any help. And it's all because of this comparison game that we play. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 20. This is our other text today. Jesus actually teaches a parable that perfectly illustrates how dangerous, how ridiculous this whole comparison game really is. And it's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Some of you might remember this. And so basically, here's what's happening. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's actually answering a question that Peter had asked earlier. And this is what he says. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Side note, when Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, pay attention, because he knows what heaven is like, right? And so he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he says that there was this landowner who had a vineyard, and it was harvest time. And so he went into the marketplace to hire some workers at 6 a.m., beginning of the workday, and he hired several workers, and he agreed to pay them one denarius, which would have been very generous back then, because one denarius is what a Roman soldier made, And being a laborer was considered manual labor, right? And so they were very, um, thought that was very generous, probably very excited about that, so they agreed to work, right? So they go out to the vineyard, they start working. The landowner at some point must think that they need more help because then at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m., he goes back out to the marketplace and hires more workers to come in. Uh, And so then at 6 p.m., when 6 p.m. rolls around, the landowner starts paying the workers for all of their hard work, and that's when the workers that were hired first realize that the ones that were hired last are getting the exact same pay that they are. Now, let's read what Jesus says in verse 11 and 12 here of, of Matthew 20. He says, And when they received it, which is the pay, they complained against the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour. You made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. And so, translation, it's not fair. It's not fair that we worked way more hours than they did, but you're giving them the same amount of pay. Right? In fact, this is the very sort of thing that our kids do to us, right? Our kids run up to us and, Johnny's getting a bigger piece in pie than me. It's not fair. Right? And then his parents were like, listen, I'm taking all your pie away because none of you deserve pie if you're going to complain, right? But this is the point of the parable is that Jesus is telling us is that none of us deserve his grace. Nobody does it all. And so he gives his grace to whom he gives grace to. And so whether we've been here for four hours, eight hours, one hour, he gives us grace. Right? But that's the point of the parable. But here's what I want you to notice. How did the workers come to the conclusion that it wasn't fair? They compared. One denarius went from being generous, and when they compared, now it's unfair. So watch, watch me with this. Comparing is what leads to complaining. Complaining leads to a lack of contentment, and a lack of contentment leads us to believe that life isn't fair. Follow me again. Comparing leads to complaining, Complaining leads to a lack of contentment, and a lack of contentment makes us believe that life just isn't fair. Mark Twain said it this way. I like how he sums it up. He says, comparison is the death of joy. Now, what a perfect way to say that. Comparison is the death of joy. And so today, maybe you're here today, and you're feeling like life isn't fair. Something isn't fair about life. My question is, are you maybe playing the comparison game and you don't even realize it? And so here's some indicators. Let me walk through these real quick. A couple indicators that you might be playing the comparison game and you don't realize it. Number one, maybe you constantly feel like you're just not good enough. You never measure up. You're always thinking to yourself, you're just a failure in life. Maybe you're playing this comparison game. Number two, maybe you're looking for something external to make you happy because everything you currently have doesn't. Maybe you need something beyond that. You think that's what will make you happy. Number three, maybe you're often negative and judgmental of others. You know, that's a defense mechanism we have. We put others down in order to feel better about ourselves. But that's really at the heart of it is that comparison game. Or number four, maybe you've lost gratitude for what you do have because you're so busy focused on what everyone else has. Whether it's possessions or talent or looks or whatever the case might be, you're too focused on what they have instead of on what you have. Write this down if you're you're taking notes today. We're not called to compare ourselves with others. We're called to be content in who Christ made us to be. We're not called to compare. We're called to be content in who Christ made us to be. The question is, who did Christ make you to be today? Psalm 139 tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. David says that we were knit in our mother's wombs by God. You know what that means? Is that each one of us here today, we are originals. We are masterpieces as God created them. But because of the comparison game, we go through life comparing ourselves with others, so many of us end up dying copies of someone else. You are an original. Don't die a copy of someone else. Listen to me when I say this. God doesn't make mistakes. You are not a mistake. He created you to be you and the best version of you. He created you to reflect his glory, not someone else's glory. Be who God created you to be. And so bottom line, I have no doubt at this point that Leah was playing this contentment-killing comparison game with her sister, telling herself that Rachel is cuter, and Rachel's going to get married before me, and Rachel's probably going to be a mom before me, and she's so much more popular than me. And so at this point, Rachel's probably feeling like just a failure in life, period. Let's continue on in Genesis 29. Let's pick up at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, "'Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled.'" That I may go into her. Verse 22. Then Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Verse 24. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And so finally, at this point, this is when Jacob pretty much puts on his big boy pants. He marches into Laban and says, yo, I worked seven years for Rachel. Give me my wife. And in the Hebrew, it's meant to sound that strong. And actually, because I'm going to keep this PG today, I'm not going to tell you what the next statement he makes really means, but let's just say that he's been waiting for his wedding night for seven years, all right? Uh, and so what happens next then is Laban says, okay. And so he calls together this big wedding ceremony, everybody in the, con- or everybody in the community, and the cool thing about this passage is we actually get to see what weddings looked like thousands of years ago. And the amazing thing is they look very similar to our weddings today, right? And so what we see is they had a ceremony, just like we do today. They had a reception, just like we do today. And they had a party, and they partied a little bit too much like some people do today. Because what happens is when the reception is done, Jacob then stumbles over to the wedding tent, but he forgets his bride. Ah. Uh, Right? And so, yes, we can cut him some slack. It was late. It was dark. Maybe he had a little bit too much to drink. But watch what Laban does, ever the opportunist. Laban sees this and decides to send Leah into the wedding tent instead of Rachel. Now watch me here when I say this because this is profound. Laban has no idea the implications of what he just did. Do you remember a few minutes ago when we talked about how Jacob did something really bad? Bad to his dad. Check this out. Jacob tricked his blind dad into believing that he was the oldest sibling. And now Jacob, when he is blind because it's dark out, is being tricked by a dad into marrying the oldest sibling. Everyone say, whoa. As the uh, great philosopher by the name of Snoop Dogg once said, that's straight up crazy, yo. Some of you might be thinking, this is karma, right? What goes around comes around. Jacob deserved it. He did it to his dad. Now it's happening to him. Can you do me a favor for a minute? Can you take the word karma out of your vocabulary and insert the word biblical? Because karma is actually a cheap knockoff of what the Bible has been teaching for a long time. And so in Galatians 6, 7, he tells us, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Wow. Wow. Right? And so here's, and so yes, God still loved Jacob. Yes, God's blessing was still on Jacob, but God loved Jacob so much that he was going to discipline him, just like we discipline our kids because we love them. He was going to discipline him and not let him get away with what he did to his dad. All right? And so here's my point, is that sometimes when we think that life is unfair, we are tempted to take matters into our own hands and make them fair, which is what Jacob did. He thought he deserved the birthright, the blessing. But God is teaching us here that we reap what we sow. We don't get away with things like that. Write this down if you're taking notes. When life seems unfair, place it in God's hands instead of your own. Place it in God's hands instead of your own. You know what? God is the one who's just. He is righteous, right? He is fair. He's all these things that I am not. Why would I want to trust my unfair circumstances and my incapable hands when I've got the capable hands of God to place it in? Amen? Amen. And so moving on, as you can imagine, the scene the next morning in the wedding tent does not go well. All right, so Jacob wakes up, he rolls over, he opens his eyes, and he sees Leah, and he begins to freak out. And so Jacob starts screaming, Leah wakes up, she starts screaming, then all the servants ran in, they started screaming, everybody is screaming at this point, point. and then all of a sudden the author in verse 25 becomes Captain Obvious because he says, behold, it was Leah. Yeah. <laughs> But this is the exact moment in this story when my heart breaks. Not for Jacob, though, but for Leah. Think about this for a minute. Even though Jacob had no clue this deception was going on, Leah knew. She had to have known. And the question I keep asking myself is, why would Leah be okay with going along with this deception? And the only answer I could come up with is this, is that Leah had such low self-esteem felt like such a failure in so many ways in life, like she's unwanted, unloved, that she thought this was the only way she's ever going to get married, even if she has to trick somebody into marrying her. Which, she actually just did what we were talking about. She felt life was unfair, and she took matters into her own hands, didn't she? And it didn't turn out well. And so naturally, Jacob confronts Laban, what'd you do to me, man? But the damage has been done. And so Laban, ever the opportunist, man, this guy, he's a... He's a work. Says, hey, work seven more years. You can marry Rachel. And Jacob's like, done. So let me sum everything up here at this point. According to the world standard, Leah was a nobody. She wasn't attractive compared to her sister. She had bad eyesight. She didn't have much of a personality apparently. She even had a name that poked fun of her physical appearance. And then to top it all off, watch this. She was literally pawned off by her own dad into a marriage that was based on a lie to a man that not only didn't want her, didn't love her, but screamed and freaked out when he woke up next to her. And then he agreed to work seven years of hard labor in order to marry her younger sister. Can you imagine how Leah must have felt at this moment? The depression, the despair, Feeling unloved, feeling unwanted, and completely and utterly alone in this world, like nobody cares about me whatsoever. Stories about weddings are supposed to end with happily ever after, but this was nowhere in sight for Leah. Nothing seemed fair about her life or her circumstances. And the crazy thing is, I know that there's people here today that relate to parts of her story. Maybe you relate to more of it than we realize. But thankfully, this is where we finally see that the one thing Leah had in the end was the only thing that Leah needed, right? And so verses 31 through 35 in Genesis 29 is where we find out that Rachel can't have kids. And so what does Jacob do? He turns to Leah, right? And so I'll summarize for time's sake, but watch this. The first son that Leah Jacob had was named Reuben, which means behold a son, which Leah had hoped that Jacob would now love her because he gave him a son, but he didn't. The second son that came along was named Simeon, which means heard. And she tells God, now surely the Lord has heard me because my husband will love me now. But he didn't. The third son that comes along is named Levi, which means attached. And Leah said, now my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Jacob didn't even notice her. Then the fourth son came along and she named him Judah, which means praise. And it was at this moment, this exact time, when everything changed for Leah, Right. And so listen, instead of comparing or playing this comparison game with her sister where she felt like she's just a failure in life, instead of allowing her opportunist dad to take advantage of her yet again, instead of trying desperately for weeks, months, years, trying to earn the love of her of her husband, in verse 35, it says this, now, this time, I will praise the Lord. And so Leah decided at this moment that no matter the circumstances she encounters in life, no matter how unfair they might seem, that she is going to give praise to the Lord. She's going to be faithful to God above all other things. She chose faithfulness over fairness. And this is where everything changed. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that he says this, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then he goes on to say, so we look not to the things that are seen, the temporary, but we look to the things that are eternal, right? And so that's what Leah did. She took her eyes off of the temporary and she put them on the eternal. That's where she chose to live her life for. And so because of her decision, this is where things get crazy cool for Leah. All right, and so watch this. I'll just look at two of her sons real quick. Through the lineage of Levi her son Levi, is where we get people like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And so basically, without Levi, if he'd never been born, we can rip out the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is gone. All right, and not only that, but if we go further down the lineage of Levi, we eventually meet a couple by the name of Elizabeth and Zechariah, both from the tribe of Levi, right? Levi, um, Elizabeth and Zechariah both have a son by the name of John, who we call John the Baptist. And so essentially, if Levi was never born, there would never be a messenger in the wilderness proclaiming the coming of the Lord, or how about Judah, for instance, through Judah's lineages where we have Boaz and King David and King Solomon. And so literally without Judah, there'd be no Psalms, no Proverbs, no Ecclesiastes, no Song of Solomon. Or if we want to go further down the lineage of Judah, we meet a couple by the name of Mary and Joseph who had a little boy by the name of Jesus, all from the tribe of Judah. And if there'd never been a Judah, there'd never been a Jesus. There'd never been salvation. There'd never be hope for mankind. And because of her decision to remain faithful to Christ, no matter what, all of her children went on to do amazing things for the kingdom, all right? But the crown jewel in Leah's life is this. And it's not found in the first book of the Bible, but it's found all the way in the last. In Revelation 21 is where we read about the 12 gates in heaven. I, I like that chapter. We read that six out of the 12 gates in heaven are named after Leah's children. Can you imagine what this unwanted, unloved, unattractive, treated like a failure woman must have felt when she realized that six of the 12 gates in heaven will forever bear the legacy of not only her decision to be faithful to God, but God's decision to be faithful to us? Can you imagine how she must have felt? I imagine she fell to her knees in awe of God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to us. Listen, life isn't always fair, but the coming glory is beyond compare. It even rhymes, all right? Life isn't always fair, but the coming glory is beyond compare. And so let me end today by saying this, and whether you're a mom today or anybody here that's ever felt like just a failure in life, our culture will find reasons to devalue you Diminish you, even try to redefine you according to 10 different things that you never should have been in the first place. But at the end, all that really matters is were you faithful to God? You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, he tells us that someday all of us will stand before him. And the words that we desperately want to hear from Jesus are these Well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, good and attractive servant. Well done, good, and physically fit with big bicep servant. Well done, good, and faithful servant. We might not feel like life is fair, but you know what? God honors our obedience. He honors our faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7.9 tells us that he is faithful to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. And so my encouragement for you today is this, is that stop playing the comparison game. Be who Christ called you to be. Stop taking matters into your own hands. Take your eyes off the temporary, place them on the eternal, and above everything else, stay faithful to God because that's what matters in the end. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are such an amazing God to look at the story of Leah and see how you orchestrated and you were faithful to her from Genesis all the way to Revelation and it continues to this very day in eternity. And so, Lord, I pray if anybody walked in here today feeling despair, feeling like they're a failure, feeling diminished or devalued, Lord, whatever the case might be, Lord, I pray that today they would know that being faithful to you is the most important thing they could ever do. And in the end, it's the only thing that really matters. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to us. I thank you that you loved us long before we could love you. You're an amazing God. We don't deserve your grace, but you give it to us today. So Lord, we bask in that grace. We celebrate in that grace. And Lord, we choose to be obedient and faithful to you. Thank you for being an amazing God today. Lord, we ask this in your name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have questions or would like to contact us for prayer, please email us at info at visitgracechurch.com. For more information about our ministries, location, and service times, go to visitgracechurch.com.